Good morning, Father. Good morning, Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have promised to be present with us. We thank you, Jesus, that in your great commission to your church, you, you said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Holy Spirit, fall afresh upon us. Fill us, Holy Spirit, that we might behold the glory of Jesus Christ. That we might look full in his wonderful face. Oh, Father, the, the things of this world, they won't go completely dark in the next 30 minutes or so. Oh, but would they just get a little dimmer? And Jesus, would you shine a little brighter? Lord, help all of us who hear and help the one who speaks. Lord, this is the, an, a fool's errand unless you send your Holy Spirit to help us. So thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the shedding of your blood. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of your life. Thank you, Jesus, for your empty tomb and, and the resurrection power that now fills your church. Thank you, Jesus, for gifts given and churches planted. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting needs. Thank you, Jesus, for being with us always. Thank you, Jesus, for your indescribable love. I pray in your name. Jesus. Amen. So, hey, grab your Bibles, turn to uh, Col Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to be in Colossians 2 for the next few weeks. And we started out, we looked through Colossians 1, and the great theme of Colossians 1 was Jesus. The most Christ centered section in all the New Testament, just filled with with truth about who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, Savior of sinners, and present now with us in the church. And so now we turn to Colossians chapter 2. And I want to read just the first five verses of Colossians 2. Now, listen, this is God's Word. It's really important. I want you to know... How great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. The word of the Lord. 
Now, I'm going to tell you all a story. I don't think this is true, but this is a good story. So there was a bank robbery that happened in San Diego, and the bandit, the bank robber, he fled to Mexico. So the American authorities, they couldn't do anything about it, and so the bank, wanting to get their money back, they hired a private investigator who went into Mexico to find the bandit and recover the cash. Well, he looked and looked and looked, and eventually he found the bank robber. He got the bank robber, but when he got in Mexico, he realized, I don't speak any Spanish, so I need an interpreter. So he had hired this interpreter. He took the interpreter, he found the bandit, and he, and he had him, and he said, I want you to tell me where the money is. So the interpreter asked him, where's the money? The bank robber said, I don't know what you're talking about. Interpreter tells the bandit, the, the investigator, investigator said, pulls out his gun, says, tell me where the money is or I'll drop you where you stand. Well, the bandit thought about it for a minute and then he said, oh, the money is in a hotel on the way of peace in the second floor men's room underneath the floor, fourth floorboard. Tells the interpreter, the interpreter thinks for a minute, turns to the investigator, and he says, Oh, senor, the bandit is willing to die like a man. <laughs> now, it's a funny story, told poorly, but it's a funny story. Now listen, both the people in the story, both the investigator and the bandit, uh, both, the, both the interpreter and the bandit were looking for treasure. Now, when it came down to it, the robber, the treasure wasn't nearly as important to him as his life. But for the interpreter, the treasure was far more important to him than the bank robber's life or his integrity. But in order to get what they wanted, they both had to sacrifice something. To keep his life, the bandit had to sacrifice the money. And to get the money, the interpreter had to sacrifice his integrity. You see, you're going to give up something for what matters most to you. You're going to sacrifice something for what your heart really treasures. For that thing that has first place in your life, you'll sacrifice something. And what this passage in all the Bible invites us to is to give Jesus Christ first place in everything. Now here's how we could say it. When Jesus is our treasure, following him will be our pleasure. When Jesus is our treasure, following him will be our pleasure. Now, that's pithy, and it rhymes, but how do you get it? How does it become real? How does it move into the center of your life? So it's something that's not just catchy and rhymey, but it's actually something that's meaningful, that when Jesus is our treasure, following him will be our pleasure. How does it get real? Well, John Eldridge, in his book, 
all things new, has a passage where he pictures your life, your heart, as a treasure chest. And his description is great. Follow along with me. Picture a treasure chest. Not a small box that might hold jewelry on a girl's nightstand. A large treasure chest, larger than any suitcase you own, larger than any suitcase you've ever seen. Picture a massive oak treasure chest like pirates might have used with large iron hinges and a huge clasp. The size and age and strength of this strong box say it was made for the most valuable things. Inside this chest are all the things you wish you could somehow be restored to you. Everything you've lost and everything you know you will lose. You have the picture? You have the picture of the treasure chest? What do you put in it? What do you keep there? What do you have at the, at the center of your heart and life? What's your treasure? Now, when we approach this idea that in all of us isn't a little keepsake box, but a massive treasure chest of oak, and in it, Jesus Christ we learned last week, comes to dwell within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that when Jesus Christ moves in, when Jesus Christ becomes our treasure, following him is our pleasure to get it, to really get it. I want us to make two huge, important shifts, two shifts that will help us understand this little pithy statement that I've shared with you. And the two shifts is we need a whole new definition of treasure, and we need a whole new definition of pleasure. We need to shift our thinking about treasure and about pleasure, because if the normal categories that we've received from the world around us continue to dominate our thinking when it comes to treasure and pleasure, we'll miss Jesus. And this little pithy, catchy phrase that I've shared with you will be meaningless. But if we can make the shift, oh, what could be opened up in our hearts? So what are the shifts? We need to make a shift in how we define treasure. Now, there's a religious way of thinking about treasure, and there's an irreligious way of thinking about treasure. The irreligious way of thinking about treasure goes like this. He who dies with the most stuff wins. That treasure is the accumulation of wealth, money, possessions, and all that the... All the all the importance that our hearts attach to that. That I am somebody if I have material wealth and the possessions that that material wealth can provide for me. So that's the irreligious, common American way of viewing treasure. 
stuff. Stuff. Have you been watching the Costco? Have you been watching it go up? Aren't you excited? It's built on the treasure principle of the common American mindset that the secret to treasure possession is accumulating more and more and more stuff. That's what's moving the earth in that acreage across 95. Every time you see more dirt moving, that's treasure. Now, there's a religious version, and the religious version maybe is more attractive to some of us. The religious version goes like this. I love you, Jesus. I love you, God. Now help me get my stuff. If following Jesus is only a mechanism to get our treasure, then we're not treasuring the right thing. You see, when Jesus is our treasure, and that's what Paul says, he says in Colossians 2, Jesus is wealth and the one in whom are hidden all the treasure. Jesus says, I am greater than all the wealth of the world. And knowing me isn't a means to an end of receiving treasure. Knowing me is the end. Knowing me is the treasure. You see the shift? It's shifting from a definition of treasure that looks to possessions, wealth, and stuff and takes all of that significance and importance that we typically gain for ourselves and putting it all on Jesus. Does it mean you can't be wealthy? Does it mean you can't have nice things? Of course not. But it means in our culture, here in the World Golf Village, here in St. John's County, it means that you and I have to ask the question, What's in our treasure chest? What has first place in our hearts? We have to ask the question. And we have to be willing to let God the Holy Spirit answer it for us as he will. We have to be willing to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any unclean way within me and lead me in the everlasting way. Jesus, am I treasuring you? Or have I fallen victim to the American material worldview that says, give me more stuff? That's the first shift. The second shift is this. We need a shift in our understanding of pleasure. We need a shift in our understanding of pleasure. Now, the the irreligious person approaches pleasure very simply. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Pleasure is just hedonism. The endless pursuit of more and more and more experiences that are pleasant to the flesh, to the body. The religious, which maybe some of us 
are more prone to. The religious version of pleasure says this, God, you are a means to an end of joy. So I will seek you as long as it's pleasant. I will seek you as long as you continue to give me the dopamine hit of an experience of your presence. But if it's too cold or the music too slow or the message too long, then maybe, God, I'm out. Because I want the pizzazz. I want the pop. I want the experience. Now, our experience is wrong. Now, the Bible's filled with people who have a real, authentic experience with God. But you know the people who had a real experience with God because they understood pleasure not as a means of an end to itself, but they had room in their experience with God for what Paul says he is willing to do for this church in Colossae. Did you see it in verse 1? I want you to know how great a struggle. Do you have room in that? Do you have room in your Christian life for that? I'm not saying do you experience it. You have room in your life for it. Or when struggle comes, when suffering comes, when, it, when that comes to your life, do you think, oh, I wonder what I've done wrong, or I wonder what God's doing wrong, that this circumstance is hitting me right now. What Paul says, I am willing to include in my definition of pleasure, agony. The word Paul uses for struggle is the word agonizomai, and it is, comes into our language, agony. I am willing to agonize for the church. I am willing to suffer for the church. I am willing to struggle for the church. We need a new definition of pleasure, one that in, allows... Something other than an endless stream of pleasures or an endless stream of positive experiences to be here with us for a, a greater reason. Now, those are the shifts. Now, why, why don't we just naturally make those shifts? Why don't, why don't we just hear the gospel on Sunday, and then we go, and we just naturally now say, oh, thank you, Dave, you've enlightened our minds, you've encouraged our hearts, and now, now I get it, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And I now know that following Jesus, when Jesus is my treasure, following him will be my pleasure. Thank you for clearing that up. I've got it now. Why can't we make the shift like that? And the reason, Paul is going to go through this entire chapter. He's going to start with the first reason. The first reason is the deluded philosophy of this age. The deluded philosophy of this age. But, but that's not the end. 
He's going to go on and he's going to say, not only do we have to watch out for the deluded philosophy of this age, we, we have to look out also for false gospels. We have to look out for false gospels of Jewish legalism. He's going to talk about that in this chapter. He's going to talk about false worship, making too much of a deal on a show of angels and worship. And then he's going to go on and he's going to hit one final thing, moralistic teaching, moralistic asceticism that tries to punish the body in order to get the spirit going. And that's all in chapter 2. And we're not going to look at all of those this morning, but the first one, Paul says, is this deluded, persuasive argument of the philosophers of the age. Now, why do we find it so difficult to make the shift, the treasure shift, the pleasure shift? Because they, we are constantly being sold. We're constantly being sold. We're constantly being talked into another way of living. All day long, every single day, we're being talked into another way of living. You've been furniture shopping lately? You walk in, what happens immediately when you walk in the furniture store? Super helpful person comes up. You ever wonder why they're so helpful? It's a great word. It makes America run. It's called commission. It's a wonderful word. You ever walk on a, a car lot? I love car salesmen. We have several in our church. So don't get the wrong idea. I love car salesmen. We live in a country built on salesmanship. We live in a country that is ruled by the art of the deal. And we live day after day after day after day under the influence of people who are selling us. They're selling us. And Paul says the reason why we don't naturally make the shift towards Jesus is because we're being sold. Marketing sells us. All day long, we're being sold. Anybody watch the Super Bowl? The commercials were great. You know why they were great? Because almost every single one of them was targeted at me. They were all trying to sell to 51-year-old white guys. We are marketed to all day, every day. Marketing sells us. You know what else sells us? The news. The news sells us. You know what else sells us? Social media sells us. You know what else sells us? The stories that we expose ourselves to in books and television and, and in theater. They sell us. We are being sold all day, every day. And you say, oh, what can we do? Well, I have a solution. Here's the solution. Jesus. 
You see, the only power that is able to help you make the shift, the only power that's able to help you make the treasure shift, make the pleasure shift, is Jesus Christ. And I have the privilege of offering to you every week the message of the gospel, that the gospel says, the gospel says that Jesus Christ loved you so much that he, though he was rich, was willing to become poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. How do you get the treasure shift? You get the treasure shift by faith in Christ, by looking to Jesus in all of his glory and being willing to say, oh, Jesus, you are willing to become poor for me so that through you I might become rich Rich in what matters most, not in material possessions, but in eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, I'm able to make the shift, the pleasure shift. Because when I look to my master, when I look to my Lord and Savior Jesus, I see him willing to agonize. Willing to suffer willing to give up everything for the sake of his beloved church, you. You see, Paul didn't just stumble into a life where he discovered one day the value of agony, of suffering. No, no, no. He looked to Jesus, and he saw in Jesus the suffering servant the Messiah, the one who wasn't just an example of suffering, but the one who had suffered in Paul's place and in our place. Do you see in Jesus Christ his willingness to give up all his treasure And to suffer in your place. Is your heart captured by the love of Christ for you to such a degree that you would be blown away that Jesus Christ, he doesn't sell you. He sacrifices for you. He doesn't market to you. He just gives himself for you. He doesn't have a filter on his life. He's wide open for you. He says, I have good news for you. I have come that you might have life. Jesus Christ is the power through which we are able to make the shift. Have you? Have you, by faith, taken Christ into the center of your life? More than just a profession, but an actual taking in the risen Christ, the living Savior, the loving Lord, taking him into the very center of your life so that he truly is your treasure. It starts with simple faith. Admitting, Jesus, 
I am so easily attracted away from you toward other things. Jesus, take my heart. Take my heart and, and, and Jesus, woo me, draw me back to you. Jesus, I believe that you died and rose again for me. Jesus, come in. I want to live for you. How do we begin? How do we begin to treasure Jesus. What I want for you more and more is to treasure Jesus. How do we do it? Well, listen, if, if you've been reading along with us in Mark chapter 10, you, you've seen this week, if you've been reading through Mark with us, you saw this week in Mark chapter 10 uh, a great example of this. Now, it's a negative example, but it's a great example. It's the rich young ruler. So, Flip over to Mark 10 and look at this story. Verse 17. He was setting out on a journey and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. At these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus loved him, Jesus invited him, and the man at that moment went away, unwilling to make the exchange by faith of looking to Christ and inviting Christ to be first place in his life. But what if he had? See, what if he had given Jesus first place? What if he had followed Jesus? What would have happened in his life? Well, we know from Colossians 2, 1 through 5, what could have happened. Listen, what Paul says could have happened in the rich young ruler's life is this. He would have been encouraged in his heart. His heart would have been filled with courage to follow Jesus. As he kept following every step he took, his heart would have been filled with, with more encouragement, more courage to follow Jesus. And his heart, he wouldn't have been alone. No, his heart would have been knit together with other followers of Jesus. He wouldn't have walked away alone and sad. He would have been with a fellowship of followers. His heart would have been knitted together with theirs. Colossians 2, 1 through 5 tells us that not only would he have been 
encouraged in his heart. Not only would his heart have been knitted together in love with some other followers of Jesus, he would have known who he really was and who God really was. He would have seen and learned in Jesus to have the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that goes beyond anything he could have ever learned. He would have grown in wisdom. He would have finally known the definition of the word he uses to refer to Jesus. Good. He finally would have known what was good. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus. He would have had encouragement. He would have had fellowship. He would have had the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He would have had wealth in the person of Jesus. And most of all, most of all, he would have had Jesus. He would have had the face of Christ forever in his heart, looking at him in in love. And he would have smiled. And he would have had joy unspeakable and full of glory. My daughter, Madeline, she's 22 years old. Um, She's not that old. I've seen a smile capture my daughter's face like the sun two times. One time was when she was a junior in high school, and she had worked and worked and worked and worked for so many, 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 many months. And she finally, uh, on that day, uh, had her greatest time ever in her two swimming events at the state championship meet. She had her two best times she ever had. And all of that discipline, all of that work, all of that effort worked itself out on that day and her face shone. There was another day. And that was the day when she in Central Park was married to her husband, Hunter, in Central Park. And her face shone. Not because she had to work to get him to love her. Not because she had to work to get him to marry her. Her face shone for love. For love. That's what makes the discipline in verse 5 good discipline. You see, Jesus invites us to follow him. That's a discipline. But it's a good discipline because he gives us his love. He gives us his love. He doesn't say, hey, you better earn it. You better work for it. No, he says, I give you myself. I have nothing else to give. I give you myself. And not just part of me. I give you all of me. That's the kind of Savior we have. And that's the kind of treasure we have. That's your Christ. Is it? Is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus your greatest treasure, your greatest pleasure? 
The English poet Giles Fletcher says it this way to you, to your heart today, and to me too. He's a path, if any be misled. He's a robe, if any naked be. If any chance to hunger, he is bread. If any be a bondman, he is free. If any be but weak, how strong is he. To dead men, life he is. To sick souls, health. To blind men, sight. And to the needy, wealth. A pleasure without loss. A treasure without stealth. Let's pray. Jesus, be our treasure. Jesus, may following you be our pleasure. Oh, Jesus, help us to see you and in all your self-sacrificing love for us. Help us to catch a glimpse in our hearts of your willingness for us to become poor so that we, through your poverty, might become rich. Help us to behold our suffering servant, naked upon the cross, willing to suffer, agonize in our place. Jesus, I pray that, that you, would, you would be lifted up and that you would be drawing men and women to yourself you are our great treasure. You are great joy. Is he drawing you? Is he, is he pulling you towards himself this morning? Won't you say to him, Jesus, I admit that, that I've plugged my heart into so many other things. Jesus, I believe you are the source of great treasure. You are the source of eternal reward. You are my joy. Jesus, I believe you suffered and died on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead. Jesus, come into my life as Savior and Lord. Help me treasure you above everything else. Holy Spirit, searcher of hearts, I pray that you would show each one here a place a place in the treasure chest of their heart that, Jesus, you desire to fill this morning. And I pray that we would treasure you, Jesus. Treasure you as our joy, our delight, our great reward. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.